0: Father, we just cannot comprehend the scope of salvation that your son paid on our behalf. But what we can do is say thank you to you, Father, to you, Jesus, to you, Holy Spirit, for not leaving us. Oh, Trinitarian great God, thank you, Lord, that through your work and effort, that we are never alone, and that you strengthen us and empower us, even in the darkest of times. And as we open your word today, I pray, Father, the words that you've decreed, Jesus, the words that you affected in Holy Spirit, the words that you inspired and have brought to life in our hearts, may they live in us. May they empower us to obedience. And may we today learn of who Christ is and what he has done in a fresh and powerful way. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. And before we get into the text, I do want to remind you that Good Friday communion service is this coming Friday at 7 o'clock right here This coming Friday, 7 o'clock, right here. Last year, we gathered online. But this year, we get to gather in person. Praise God, amen? Thank God. You know, it's been two years since we've been able to gather together in person for Easter because of COVID last year. We look forward to this coming Friday, Easter Sunday, and today is Palm Sunday. Though we do continue our journey in the book of Hebrews. And as we journey... May we not forget that this is the season that we do celebrate that our faith is a living faith, that our God is a living God, that Jesus is not dead on the cross, he's not dead in the tomb, but he is alive, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and today we're going to be walking through some rich theology about who Christ is. Many of you have probably seen on the news this past Tuesday at the Suez Canal, a large ship by the name of Evergiven under the Evergreen Company, got stuck. The waterways of the Suez Canal and, or the Panama Canal or other harbor ports like Stockholm or, for, or if you go to Rotterdam or Singapore or New York, these places are such challenging pathways to navigate that they will often have what's called a, a harbor master or a harbor pilot. And the role of this harbor pilot is to guide these large ships through waters that the captain is perhaps unfamiliar with. They know the waters so well, and their job is to take this perhaps two hundred thousand ton container ship, a ship that is twice the size of a navy supercarrier, and guide it safely into port, to guide it into its berth, into its home. The harbor pilot is critical, but that harbor pilot must be qualified for that job that he is supposed to do. You don't want someone who is their first job or their first ship to park is one of these major container ships. No, they must have that experience. They must be proven to bring that ship safely into port. The book of Hebrews, here in chapter two, we find that the author wants to demonstrate to us that Jesus is a qualified harbor pilot, able to navigate us into the port, to bring us safely home, to bring us safely into glory. Hebrews chapter 1 extols the divinity of Christ, this majestic, beautiful, all-powerful Christ. And then in chapter 2, the admonition, don't neglect the great salvation that he has accomplished. What is that great salvation? In Psalm chapter 8, there is a psalm there that describes that man was intended for glory. Yet man at the fall forfeited that royalty, forfeited that glory, and yet Christ came as the ultimate man and fulfilled Psalm 8, bringing everything into subjection under him, and all who believe in Christ, their royalty is restored. But of course, the question is, is he qualified? Is he able? Is he fitted for this great task? The big idea today, you ready for it? The big idea is this. Jesus is perfectly fitted to bring us to glory. Jesus is perfectly fitted to bring us to glory. We're going to go through eight verses, verse 10 all the way down to verse 18 and finish out chapter 2. It's going to be a survey of these key theological concepts and I'm going to give you Ten, bear with me, all right? We are going to get done today, but I'm going to give you ten reasons why Jesus is qualified. Now, even though we're going to overview these fairly quickly, we're going to move from one to the next. We're doing this because the writer is preparing us for what he's going to unpack in greater detail later on in the book of Hebrews. So some of these concepts, you may say, wait, slow down. I want to understand this more. Don't worry. We are going to come back to it because the writer, really what he wants to do is prove to us that Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith and that he is that qualified harbor pilot able to navigate our lives and bring this into glory, as he said. Let's begin reading in verse 10, and we're going to go down to verse 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is perfectly fitted to bring us to glory. How? Here's number one. You ready? We're going to go through ten. Number one. Because it fits his heart. How is he qualified to be the harbor pilot? How is he qualified to be the one fitted to bring us to glory and restore our royalty? Number one, because it fits his heart. Okay, we're gonna go through this whole passage verse by verse. And it says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, this great God, for whom all things exist, for his glory and his joy, and by whom he upholds all things. We've already been introduced to that in chapter one, verse one through four. Jesus, who is the upholder and the creator of all. And it was fitting that he should bring many sons to glory. Oh, I love this word, fitting. It means suitable, or it accords well, or it makes sense. It makes sense by God's heart that he would bring people to glory, that he would restore the sinner. Don't miss out on this. God's saving work is not strange. Sometimes we think, oh my goodness, this God who had to stoop to our level and depart heaven, it seems so strange to his character. The writer of Hebrews says, no, it's not strange. Matter of fact, his saving work fits his heart. A commentator once said that if you want to see God most clearly, if you want to see his heart most passionately, then see it as he works to reconcile lost men and bring them home into glory. God's heart of saving the sinner is not something that he just has to do, but it's an overflow of his being. Later in the book of Hebrews, the writer will say, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. That the work of salvation reflects God's heart. It fits his heart. Sometimes we wonder, you know, who is God the Father? Who is the man behind the curtain? We see Jesus. We like what we see there. But what is God's heart really like? Well, that question was actually asked by Philip in John chapter 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Show us who God really is like and Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say show us the Father? If you want to see the heart of God, if you want to see his heart, you look at Jesus and you look at his saving work and this fits his heart. He is not a harbor pilot that begrudges his work. God's heart is to save sinners. He loves and rejoices when people come home and saving belief in him. He loves and rejoices when the Chinese lift their hands right now and worship He loves it to see someone in Papua New Guinea come to a saving knowledge of Christ. He loves it when a Muslim comes to saving Christ. Or a Hindu, he rejoices because it's his heart to save you and me. So number one, he's qualified. Why? Because it fits his heart. The one for whom, by whom all things exist. It fits his heart to bring us to glory, to restore our Royalty Number two, ready? Number two, he is proven. Our great harbor pilot, the harbor master who is able to guide us into glory. It fits his heart and he's proven. And you want someone who's proven. You know, even the Suez Canal, they have uh, what are called canal teams that board ships and guide them through the Suez Canal. So part of the investigation right now is, Where were these guys navigating this ship? Was it their fault or not? And you want someone who's experienced to navigate these waterways. You don't want someone on their first time parking a ship that is as long as the Empire State Building is high. You want someone who is proven. Well, this God whose heart is fitted and Christ is also being by virtue God is fitted and desirous to bring many sons to glory. And it's God the Father's plan to make Christ perfect through suffering. To make him perfect through suffering. Now, this should prompt a question in your heart. Was Jesus not perfect before? Was there something deficient in him? That now he must be made perfect? Has something been added to him So that now he is more perfect than he was? No, the Bible says very clearly that Jesus forever was perfect, is perfect, and always will be perfect. Just a few verses earlier in Hebrews chapter 1, if you look at verse verse 12, it says regarding Christ, you are the same and your years will have no end. He is unchanging. So what does it mean that he was made perfect through suffering? Listen to me very carefully. This is so important. His suffering proved his perfection. His suffering proved what was already true. You know, when Olympic athletes go to the, these contests and these runs, they've been practicing. They can run their four and a half, five minute miles. But it's the competition that proves why someone with a stopwatch and times it, and it proves that what they said they can do is actually, in fact, true. The suffering of Christ, not only does it accomplish salvation for you and I, but it proves Jesus Christ is who he says he was and is. That he is perfect. His suffering proved his perfection. Put another way, when we get squeezed, what comes out is what's in our heart. That's convicting, isn't it? When life is stressful, when the day is hard, when things aren't going your way and you get squeezed, what comes out? You know, I'm convicted to say, like, my my wife and my kids can tell you that when I get squeezed and the day gets long and I'm stressed, what happens? I get a little impatient. I get frustrated. I might even start to withdraw because I start to get overwhelmed. And it's like when I get squeezed, I am convicted with what comes out because it's not always pretty. When Jesus was squeezed and forsaken and rejected and crucified, and everyone who he ever loved left him. When God, his father, turned his back on his son, when Jesus was squeezed, what came out? He looked down at his assault team that hated him, those Jews and Romans. And he looked down on them and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, the suffering... Proved what was in his heart. It proved his perfection. It proved his qualification. He was not made in the sense that he was added to his perfection, but the suffering proved what he already was. He is proven. His work fits his heart. Number three, He is our brother. He is our brother. If the harbor master, the harbor pilot, guiding us into port is our brother, there's a different level of relationship than someone who just steps on the boat that you didn't even know. There's a familial affection. There's a relationship that is not present with other people. Now, what do I mean by he is our brother? Well, you know, much has been said and taught on the fact that God is our Father, and rightly so. We're even taught by Jesus to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But one of the things that is less taught and often less understood is that as God the Father is our Father, that Jesus is also portrayed as our older brother. He is the one, the firstborn. That dies so that we can share in his inheritance. Now let's unpack this for just a moment. It says that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So the God who sanctifies, we who are sanctified, all have our righteousness from one source. What does that mean? When we... Trust in Jesus. So, God the Father has appointed His Son, and it's fitting the heart of God to save sinners through His death on the cross. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ on the cross, God takes His righteousness and places it on us. We are made positionally righteous and perfect. It's not our righteousness, it's His righteousness. When we have trusted in Christ, We now share in the very righteousness of God. That is astounding. It's not my righteousness. If you've trusted in Christ, you bear the righteousness of the thrice holy God. And because you share that one source, Hebrews says, that one source of righteousness that comes from God himself, therefore, here's the the reason, then I am not ashamed to call you my brother. It's very important to understand. The only ones who can claim brotherhood with Christ are those who have the righteousness of God. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then you cannot claim God as your father, nor can you claim Christ as your brother. Matter of fact, he stands as judge. And right now, he withholds justice so that you might experience the love of God. But if you reject him, then he will bring his justice. That is why Hebrews 2 says, don't neglect such a great salvation. Listen to the qualified Christ who makes us brothers. And and the writer of Hebrews is like, in case you don't understand this, let's go back to the Old Testament. And I love Hebrews. One of the reasons I chose it is because if you want a holistic biblical theology, go to Hebrews. If you want to see how to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, you go to Hebrews. And so he's going to take us to Psalm 22, verse 12. Here in chapter 2, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. It's a quotation from Psalm 22. And Please, please hang with me. I know that there's going to be some things this morning you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Grab on to what you can. Some of you can grab things more than I can. Some of you are at the beginning of your faith and you're still learning the rudimentary elements of our faith. There's going to be cookies, some on the lower shelf, and there's going to be some at the high shelf. Chocolate chip are up high, sugar cookies down low, all right? But here's the thing. When you look at the Old Testament usage in the New Testament, by implication, the whole context of that passage comes with it. What do I mean? When he quotes Psalm 22, he's not hoping that you just get that one verse, but that you understand the entire Psalm. The entire Psalm is brought into this text that he quotes. What is Psalm 22? Psalm 22 opens with this verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Where was that quoted? Jesus Christ on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then later on in the psalm, as a result of that forsakenness, this quote happens, that as a result of the being forsaken, that people are brought into a brotherhood singing And so the writer is saying, this shouldn't be unfamiliar to you. That Jesus Christ was forsaken on the cross in order to bring us into relationship, to bring us into his family, to make us his brother. The Old Testament talks about it. It's what Jesus lived out, and I'm reminding you of what that is. And again in verse 13, I will put my trust in him, quoted from Isaiah 8. Isaiah was, quoting, was saying this, that he believed that God had the power to deliver him from death. Now it's appropriated for Christ. That through being forsaken, he's going to bring brothers to praise. And he is trusting in his father to deliver him so that the children might share in what Christ has been given. That's what it says, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus Christ is our brother and the point of this passage is to demonstrate that his work was meant to invite us into that relationship. Now practically, let's bring this down very practically. God as our father is one of the most glorious images, one whom can hold us in embrace, one who might we sit on his knee and we hear his soft and tender voice. But we also see God in Christ as our brother, and what does that relationship look like? Well, you turn to the Gospels, and you see that Jesus hung out with the disciples, and he walked with them, and he talked with them, and undoubtedly, he laughed with them, and he shared experiences with them. That God is our Father, transcendent and yet accessible, loving and mighty, and who protects us. But in Christ, he is also our brother, one whom we walk through life with. One whom we can, dare I say, laugh with. One whom we can share a meal with. He is our brother. He is proven, and it is his heart to bring us into that relationship. And number four, now we're going to start picking up steam here. If you're wondering, like, oh my goodness, we're on number four. No, we're going to pick up steam here. Number four, he is human. He is human. Chapter one presents Christ in his divinity, chapter two presents Christ in his humanity, in that he partook of the same thing. See verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. It's his heart to save us. He is our brother. Therefore, he must be flesh and blood like we are flesh and blood in order to partake or to enter in to our situation. Philippians chapter two, verse seven through eight. He emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that, this is Nathan's commentary right here, okay? This is not scripture. So that he could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let's recap for just a moment because we got a lot of stuff that we're going through. The author started this section in verse 5 by emphasizing from Psalm 8, we talked about that last week, that dominion over the world was granted to human beings. Jesus now rules over the world at God's right hand, being crowned with glory and honor. He is qualified to rule for he is fully human. He is flesh and blood, like all other human beings. Or as the author says, he had to be like his brothers in every way. He partook. Jesus wasn't partially human or mainly human, but fully human. Why? It has to be this way. Because rule in Psalm 8, subjection of creation in Psalm 8, was promised to human beings. And therefore, That royalty, that rule, can only be restored through a human being. Therefore, Jesus had to become flesh to restore in full that which was lost. This is not just theological hula hoop. Jesus is fully man. And this has tremendous implications for our salvation. Because listen to me, if he's only 90% man, if he's only partly human, then he couldn't redeem your full humanity and there's still some work left for you to do. There's still some salvation that you have to work out on your own. But he was fully man and fully God. So that on the cross, when he paid the price, he paid the fullness of our humanity, the fullness of our sin. And when he said, It is finished, brother and sister in Christ, it means it is finished. The totality of your human destiny to rule alongside Christ has been 100% restored. Not partially, it's his work by his grace. He entered into our situation to fully redeem us. He is human. Number five, he is sacrifice. Number five, he is sacrifice. Now Hebrews will continue to unpack these concepts. We are going to speed up through these last few because these are things that we're going to cycle back to again and again. He partook of the same things, verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. The Old Testament concept of sacrifice is that the the curse of death can only be rolled back by death, by sacrifice. And so Jesus becomes flesh and blood to become a sacrifice. Because he's been proven perfect, he's qualified to be that sacrifice to atone and to pay the debt of death. And how does he do that? By dying on the cross. He does that by dying on the cross. Justice demands death. Jesus goes in our place. He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Number six, he is warrior. He is warrior. That Jesus, the God-man, Entered fully into flesh and blood to be sacrifice, but also warrior on our behalf to destroy the power of Satan forever. You want to see a beautiful passage that most clearly demonstrates this? It's Psalm chapter 18. Matter of fact, I'm going to turn there. You can just listen along or you can turn there. But Psalm chapter 18, this is worth reading. Again, and again, and again. Because here is what the psalmist says. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Death is all about me. In my distress, I called to the Lord, verse six says. And now here's the Lord's response. Here's God's response to confront death on behalf of his children. The earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Why is he angry? At sin, and also because his child has been assaulted. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. He thundered, In the heavens, the channels of the sea were seen. And he, at the blast of his nostrils, exposes the foundations of the earth. This is a mighty response. Jesus Christ, he who is sacrificed is also a warrior coming on behalf of his people to confront death, to confront Satan who has the power of death and disarm him forever. The victory begins here. Yes, Satan is still alive and active right now, but the victory has been won. He has been disarmed, and nothing, nothing can stand against the people of God. And we look forward to that day when Jesus returns in glory, and our foe, our accuser, the one who is disarmed at the cross, will finally be thrown into the lake of fire, and we will all witness his destruction and sing the hallelujah chorus to God Almighty for overcoming death and destroying our adversary for all eternity. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day. I'm tired of his lies. I'm tired of his accusations. I'm tired of his assaults on my mind and on my body. But when the devil throws those things in our face, then we remind ourselves and we say, Satan, you are a defeated foe. And one day I'm gonna be standing on the paved gold streets of glory watching you cast down into the flame of fire. My God has won the war. Enjoy your time because it is short. He is our warrior God. He is our deliverer, number seven. He is our deliverer who delivers us from the fear of death and from lifelong slavery. You see that? It says that He delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is what man fears most. We fear death. Every human being fears death. Every religion tries to answer the question of death. People try to anesthetize themselves from from death by entertainment, by substances, by distractions that everywhere in the back of their mind, there is this gnawing reality that life is short and that, yes, COVID could snuff it out or a car wreck. And so we live in fear of death. But you see, Jesus came on the cross to destroy the fear of death. So that, brother and sister, if you are in Christ, okay, you know what? We might fear the process of dying But sometimes I think we get in our minds that as our body is fraying and as our mind is fraying, we somehow think that the Lord who's promised to be with us will somehow depart from us. Instead of being there for us in that dark moment when our body is giving way, it's not something to fear but to believe and know that as our body is shutting down, our God is right there with us. And at the moment that our eyes shut and we die, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. and the moment that those eyes shut, they reopen a moment later, beholding the smiling face of Jesus Almighty. The death for the Christian is not something to fear but really is one of the most joyous moments of our existence. Don't listen to the world that puts death as something to be fearful of. Jesus came to disarm death. It's not something to worry about. It is something to trust God with. He came to destroy the fear of death and to set us free from lifelong slavery, slavery to our sinful desires and passions and then number eight he is unfailing he is unfailing he keeps his covenant he helps the offspring of abraham he made a promise to abraham that one day there would be a people from abraham and he keeps that promise but you know who the offspring of abraham are It's not primarily those who are ethnic Israel. Matter of fact, there are some, of course, that are Israelites, but the promise was made to Israel. But the offspring of Abraham are now the community of faith. Those who, according to the Apostle Paul, have been grafted into the promises given to Israel. So that all who believe are now the offspring of Abraham. Abraham believed by faith faith and it was counted to him as righteousness all who believe by faith is counted to them as righteousness and they become offspring spiritually of Abraham he is unfailing he helped Abraham he will help us he keeps his promises number 9 he is high priest he did all this and was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He entered into flesh and blood so he can be a worthy representative, one who's able to actually go in on our behalf. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about his high priesthood, but he went in there to make propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath, to make expiation, to cleanse us from our sin. And he can only do that fully as a man. And he comes in as a man, the great high priest. And then number 10, this great high priest, oh, this is so lovely, he understands. What makes him qualified? What makes him the great harbor pilot, able to see his home? Because his work fits his heart, he is proven, he is brother, he is human, he is sacrifice, he is warrior, he is deliverer, he is unfailing, he is high priest, and he understands. Having been tempted himself, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he is perfect, no one understands temptation like he does. Now temptation in and of itself is not sin, it's whether we give in to temptation Now you say, wait, hold on, because he's perfect, how can he possibly understand my temptation? Well, let me explain it to you this way. Because you're a sinner, you always give in before temptation has its full force. Jesus is the only one who never gave in and therefore experienced the fullness of everything that temptation could throw at him. No one has experienced the heights of temptation like Christ because he never gave in. And because he's perfect, no one hates temptation more than Jesus. He understands temptation more fully than you ever could. But without sin. Now, because we're sinners, it doesn't give us license to give in to temptation. But it gives us joy and encouragement that when we are tempted, our God understands. And he loves to walk his children through it. So that we might have victory and learn to have joy in his presence and holiness. We have an understanding God. So here's a question. Is he qualified? Believers, we are his brothers and sisters. Jesus lived a flesh and blood life. He knew the agony of temptation and the pain of suffering. Most importantly, he died for our sake so that we would be freed from the power of death Jesus is our elder brother. His victory over death and sin means that we have conquered death in him. As C.S. Lewis said, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Indeed, believers no longer need fear death because of the atoning work of our great high priest. Jesus is perfectly fitted to bring us home that great harbor pilot is more than able to guide you into safety, into glory, into your royalty. Don't fear the wind and the waves. Don't fear death. Our God has defeated them. Would you pray with me? Father, please help us by your Holy Spirit to take these truths and implant them deep into our hearts. I pray that you would help us to take one thing that we have learned and share it with someone this week. Maybe at the dinner table. Maybe at work. You are perfectly fitted, Jesus. It fits your heart. Your actions fit your heart. And we have great comfort in knowing that you will bring us home. We ask your blessing on this day. Help us to live in the freedom that you have given us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will stand with me this morning as we conclude, and if you have any questions about what it means to be perfected in Christ, to be forgiven, come talk with me. Talk with one of our staff or friends here. We'd love to show you from God's word how you might be saved. I send you forth with this,